You're listening to the Art of Move podcast, hosted by Dr. William Raybar and Anthony Manuel, where we attempt to create a grand unified theory of human movement, biomechanics, and training. If you enjoy these episodes, you can watch them streamed live on nofilter.net, where you can interact directly and have all your questions answered in real time. Five, four, three, two, and one. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Art of Move podcast. I am Anthony Manuel. I'm here with my good friend, Dr. William Raybar, and we're going to be talking about all different kinds of topics today. It's going to be more of a free flow episode. Both Will and I have been pretty busy with our own personal stuff and haven't had as much time to plan out topics. Uh, There's a few things that came in via social media. Uh, So you can follow me on Twitter at Anthony R. Manuel, M-A-N-U-E-L-E, or on Instagram at the body moves. And then Will is at the art of move on Instagram. If you ever have topic requests or different ideas that you want to share with us, uh, we have a few different nuanced points that we want to kind of cover today. And we want to talk a little, I wanted to talk a little bit about some stuff that I've been experimenting with in my per- personal movement practice that I found uh, has really changed my, my lived experience of movement. And um, yeah, we're just going to, we're going to dive in. We're going to see what we can, what we can cover today. And where we where we go and one of the first things that we wanted to talk about was one of the low hanging fruits that we talk about for posture and for movement and for movement quality is uh, one of the goda's universal principles of uh, you know being back chain dominant having your hips behind your rib cage so that the uh, you know the musculature and the fascia and the connective tissue of your posterior chain is predominantly the driving uh, force and the the most active part of your body. When you shift your hips forward, which we tend to do from sitting in our chairs, outsourcing our uh, uh, you know our structural stability to the backs of chairs, and uh, like leaning into counters with our hips, and basically just having our hips shift forward. You know, deadlifts having this hip forward movement, squats where your hips move from back to front, and you're locking your hips out in front of your ribcage all the time. This uh, tends to neurologically pattern in and even structurally pattern in what's called front chain dominance. And it's, it's not as structurally secure. It's not as structurally decompressed for our joints. It's not not as beneficial. Um, But we did want to talk a little bit about when it's appropriate to be in your front chain and when you can add front chain uh, training into your regimen. I I think like it's one topic that I kind of wanted to explore, but when you're, when you were thinking about this topic that you wanted to kind of dive into, what, what angle were you thinking of going at it? Well, uh, a couple things. One, the simplest way I can put it is that if your hips are in front of your ribs, in general, you'll be tensioning the front of your body. Imagine you have elastics, like a giant elastic in the front of your body and the giant elastic on the back of your body going from your feet to your head. If you're leaning backwards, and that's when your hips are in front of your uh, ribs, that front elastic is going to be tensioned. And that's what you're doing. That's the um, hip flexors, the quads, the uh, rectus abdominis, everything's pulled together in that front chain. And that's not where you want to be doing your work from. That's not what you want to be getting used to. Um, a lot of people have tight hip flexors, tight quads. It's like that. You'll never get rid of that unless you start going back chain. Right. So it is a behavior change right off the get go. And I wanted to get into the difference of being back chain, like the state of being back chain and being front chain dominant. Okay. So Mm. for me, I had my hips in front of my ribs for so long, especially when I'm sitting, uh, resting. I never rested on the ground. Basically, I had a really, really front chain dominant pattern, and it still shines through now. Even though my hips go behind my ribs and I'm really adamant about it, the front of my body was locked for so long 
that let's say my abs get pulled in towards my hips in the front. So my mm. hips will be behind me, but I'm still in that closed position. Like that elastic is pulling tighter in the front because I'm so neurologically used to it. I'm so mechanically used to it, even though it's way, way better than before. So I'm back chain dominant in my position, but front chain dominant in my behavior. Do you get what I'm saying? Everything's pulling forward, even though my hips are behind me. I want my hips to be behind me and I want to decompress the front of my body and get it nice and long. So you'll see that nice long spine on a lot of back chain dominant uh, athletes. Um, I don't have that quite as much. It, it seems more compressed, but mm. it's getting better slowly. Okay. So that's really the, the nuance difference there. So are you, I just want to make a clarifying point. When you say that you spent a lot of time in that front chain dominant position, I have two, you know, obviously like I, I've reclined into chairs and I, like deadlifted for 90% of my lifts, you know, like it was, I was almost a deadlift specialist, basically pushing my hips forward past my, and when I, even when I watch videos of my old deadlifting, I would lock my hips past my rib cage. Um, I really neurologically ingrained that pattern and same thing. I've, you know, I got this standing desk that I do the podcast in and I stay back to like, I, I'm actively thinking about staying back chain dominant, but all the, uh, the front chain compression stuff between deadlifting and then doing all the compressive work for my rectus abdominis and serratus and all this like gymnastics work where I'm pulling that whole front chain in, like it's taking a long time to, to basically reverse that compression both structurally and neurologically but now that you're living more back chain dominant are you saying that there are still structural obstructions to you know moving in a back chain dominant position or is it that your neurology is so used to moving and you know to accommodate this front chain dominant position that you haven't neurologically rewired your patterns yet um it's both however you can rewire like i can get going on rewiring my patterns right away that is the butt behind rib cage mm. behavior here because the more i do it the more my brain's going to accept it my spinal cord's going to accept it it's going to be a more relaxed position i'm going to find the nuances to the feeling however i did spend years in that front chain dominant position the uh tissues are just getting crushed in that front chain right so it mm. takes a while, even when you get the behavior down to really unload that front chain, unload the tissues and get everything nice and elongated. We could talk about how to do that. However, um, that is where I'm at right now. I'm trying to become more back chain in not only butt behind rib cage, but getting everything elongated as I move. Okay. So I was looking mm. at a, a boxing video I posted the other day and I'm back chain dominant. My hips are behind my ribs the whole time. However, you can see my spine compressed a little bit. Now in boxing, that's kind of a, a thing to do. You are supposed to kind of shell up. However, I'm not trying to be a boxer. I'm trying to live. So my boxing mm. exactly when I'm just out there practicing and having fun, I don't want to look like a boxer. I want to practice more, uh, the behavior that's going to last longer. That's going to bring me to an old age. And that mm. will be to be back chain dominant. Okay. So, um, there's a little bit of a nuance there. Yeah. And so, you know, that's, that's the morphology of back chain dominant positions, we're talking about natural human states, the most optimal way for the human body to move and behave in space. Um, that butt behind ribcage position is great. It's, it's really beneficial for forward locomotion. It promotes better control at the hip, ankle and knee for, you know, being able to change direction. It gives you more 
options and more access into that hip socket to, you know, to rotate in different directions, but it's not going to be, you know, universally relevant to, to different sports. For example, like, you know, if you're, if you're hunched in, you're crunched in for, for boxing, like you might not end up being back chain dog. You might be, you know, going back quite a bit and leaning back, leaning your chest back to, you know, develop a rhythm so that you can be more evasive in a, in a martial arts setting, right? Like you see that quite a bit in different, uh, different, really, really well. I mean, when we did our Conor McGregor breakdown, he was front chain dominant, even when he was in his sort of peak, you know, when he was like that, when his movement was still really, really good, he was still pretty front chain dominant with his hips cocked forward a little bit so that he could almost like spring a kick or, or, you know, have that distance between him and his opponent. So it's, it's going to be relevant. Uh, you know, back chain dominance is mostly relevant for living optimally as a human being. Like you said, you know, I'm not trying to be a boxer. I'm trying to live. You like boxing and you practice rhythm and it's part of your movement practice, but you're not trying to optimize your morphology to be a boxer. Yeah, exactly. And, and there is different styles of martial arts where you can have your spine more upright. Um, even some boxers, Floyd Mayweather comes to mind. He's not really hunched over. Uh, um, Conor McGregor is a little bit, although I question how much he... <laughs> This might be a little bit of a, you know, just a, a observation at my, but I think he's a little bit ego driven in that he stands up nice and tall and tries to bring mm. the chest forward. You know, that like classic, this is how you get the best posture posture, right? Mm. Like mm -hmm. where mm -hmm. your chest is nice and high and you're kind of like leaning in that Woda uh, back or sorry, front chain dominant hips way in front of the chest position. As mm. long as you're upright and tall. I think that's what he's got going on. And then he mixes that with a little bit of swagger. Right. So yeah, um, he does display a lot of back chain dominance in his fighting, but in his life, I noticed a lot of front front chain uh, dominant behavior. That's just an mm -hmm. aside. Right. Um, yeah. Sorry. I missed the, the original question there. Yeah. <laughs> the it, was, it was less, dominance. it was more just of an observation, right? Like it's yeah. the, the, when we talk about back chain dominant behavior, um, we're talking about what is going to optimize your spine to be long and decompressed naturally. What is going to promote the best range of motion through your hips so that your weight distribution is is adequate. And, you know, like that back chain dominant behavior is not going to be universally applicable to every sport all the time, right? So maybe when you're talking about getting into your front chain and, and developing front chain dominance, like all like the the hips behind rib cage or or in front of the rib cage thing that's something that you can test you can stand up and feel that directly right now like if you push your hips forward and you start leaning you can feel your quads start firing to keep you from falling your abs start fall you know like everything in the front side of your body starts firing to keep you from falling backwards right and there are, there are situations in gymnastics or in in different sports where keeping your balance and getting into your front chain is very very you know beneficial in terms of direct front chain training, do you think there's a place for, you know, in a movement practice to really emphasize the, you know, getting into your front chain? Um, I don't personally think there is, and this is the million mm. dollar question, right? Because a, a lot of training, a lot of traditional training that most people are used to at this point is front chain, hip thrusts come to mind, uh, deadlifts, squats, you know, traditionally done, even uh, kettlebell swings where you're your uh, pelvis is accelerating forward. Your spine is accelerating backwards, which is exactly what you're trying to avoid when you're in locomotion. I don't know if this can be really denied. If you look at the slow motion, it's, it's really when you're running, your hips don't accelerate forward. 
so much as you're, uh, you're staying behind like uh, back chain dominant hips behind ribs the whole time. And you're moving from there. And the movement is really more rotary and side to side. So for me, uh, I have very little place for it, maybe 5% when I'm stretching or, you know, just trying to access a position to, to feel something out, but I'd never really train in front chain position ever really. Hmm. Very, very interesting. So like, you know, the thing that comes to mind in terms of relevance for me is like, well, what about sit-ups or like training your rectus abdominis? What about any, uh, you know, pushing movement that engages your front chain? It's, I, th I think of push-ups as, as a front chain dominant behavior in a lot of ways, not necessarily because it's, it's pushing your hips forward, but because the, the sort of resistance to gravity or, or you know, that, that downward pulling force towards the ground your people are like, well, a push-up is basically a plank, right? So it's like planks and these things that are drawing that midsection in and, and activating and creating rigidity through the core. We, we, we've done enough work and we've done enough episodes on why we don't believe in, you know, too much direct core training, creating rigidity through your spine. We're big spinal engine advocates and the ability to maintain spinal mobility is really, really important for not just locomotion, but also feeling good in general. But do you think like, is there such a thing as core stability? Should we be thinking about what, what function in, in this locomotive picture do abdominal muscles have? Um, a lot of what you said there is really interesting, right? Like, let me, let me go back and, and answer a few things there. So I do train front dominant front chain, dominant musculature and, and fascial lines. I just make sure my butt's behind my rib cage and my spine is elongated as I do it. Butt behind rib cage, spine elongated. So when I look at, you know, those pictures of the J-shaped spine where indigenous show more of like just a, a small lumbar curve and a more straight <clears throat> upper back mm. where Westerners will show a big S curve where, you know, the lumbar spine has a really big bend and the thoracic spine has a really big bend. And there's the corresponding mm. thoracic bend. Um, I move more towards the J-shaped spine and have all I'm thinking now as a low hanging cue is butt behind my rib cage and keep my spine long at the same time. And I only have to have my rib cage a little bit in front of my rib or sorry, my hips a little bit behind my rib cage. It doesn't mm -hmm. have to be a major effort. However, if I'm going to run full speed, my hips better be behind my rib cage big time. The faster mm -hmm. I go, the more it requires that back chain dominance to be safe. Okay. So when I'm walking around, yeah, I'm at a low level, I'll probably only be an inch behind, ideally, an inch behind my ribs, right? But when I'm cutting, my hips better be way behind my ribs in order to stay, you know, a lot safer. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so uh, the, uh, the last question you had, what was it again? It was, what, what instance would you be training the front chain musculature? Right. I think uh, that was the question because yeah. I went all over the place, but it's like, you know, if, if we're optimized, if we're, if our movement practice is centered around optimizing locomotion, yeah. what, do, what role does training front chain musculature have in that locomotive picture in your mind? Uh, I got you. Okay. So. Uh, I only really want enough stability so I can go head over foot so I can be in my columns as I land. If I'm controlling that at a, you know, at a sprint pace, that's very, very optimal. Okay. Mm. Um, if I can control it, like 
in boxing, if I'm moving around and I can control, uh, you know, a pivot at a fast speed because my head's over my foot, I've displayed in my mind, I've displayed a lot of core control, a lot of core quote unquote stability, but really my spine was moving along with the movement. Okay. So there was never really a time where it was stable when you define it as not non-moving. Okay. Mm. And I'm not moving it in a rectus abdominis way where I'm like, I'm doing a sit up. That's not really mm. happening. I want to do the reverse of a sit up as I'm moving. Right. So basically I want my spine long. I want my sternum away from my pubis. Okay. So I want my, my, uh, basically my belly button to be away from, um, yeah, away from the pubis, right? So ribs and, uh, pelvis are separating in the front, getting as long as they can in the front without, uh, having that, you know, uh, stripper butt, right? You want to keep nice and long and have that J shape, uh, lumbar curve. Yeah. It's a J, not a Donald duck, butt, right? Exactly. Right. So I, I've have very little training in the front chain dominant, you know, sit-ups or anything like that. I just don't think it's relevant to locomotion. Um, however, is it relevant to getting your muscles bigger in the front? If you like abs, you'll probably have to do a little bit of that, right? Like to get the bigger abdominal look. However, what you want to do is make sure that those are long and not pulling you too far in the front chain because you've just worked them neurologically made them tense that it's just pulling you in the front chain all day. And that's not that hard to do. Okay. No, it's not. Most of what we're doing in in daily life is front chain dominant behaviors. So why not promote back chain dominant behaviors, uh, in your training in order to counteract what 99% of us are doing all day. It makes more sense to me that way. Like, so would you say like, if you're doing, um, direct rectus abdominus work, that six pack muscle that, that forces your spine to close in on itself like that in the front chain would you do an equal amount of back extension work like i know it's it's pure vanity right but would you want to have that same amount of um you know flexion and extension so that you're you're able to because because i know for me like you know when i was into crossfit i I did like four gazillion toes to bar and uh ghd sit-ups and everything that was like contracting but like ask me how many Superman holds I did, or ask me how much I actually stretched my rectus abdominis and allowed that fascial line to, you know, extend. Like I was chronically pushed in and I can still, you know, when I, when I'm not paying attention or I have a couple of days where my movement practice is a little off, I revert back to those old neurological patterns. I see myself collapsed in on myself and it's not, you know, because I don't have a strong back. I have a really strong back but I, I did close in my whole front chain quite a bit and I'm working on creating the position where I can open it up a little bit. Would you, would you add an equal amount of like back extension work if you're training your core directly? I mean, you could do it that way. However, I don't personally parse the body out like that anyway. I don't yeah. do the, the equal amount front and back. That's not how I look at the body and that's not how I see the fascial chains. Um, so to, to answer that question, Instead of that, let's say I was a bodybuilder, right? Or, or I'm doing exercises for my abs and I'm really pumping them up. I want to get those big rectus abdominis. So I have the six pack for the summer, right? Mm. Um, I would want to get those, like get my, uh, ribs as far forward from my hips as possible and do some breathing in that area. Right. So Mm. I'm, I'm elongating it. I'm not quite like just doing supermans. Just for the sake of, oh, okay, my back musculature that's super tense is going to pull my super tense front musculature 
into a better position. I don't want that. I want my front musculature to relax so that I can do other activities and not have like a balance of super tense muscles on either side pulling. Do you get right. what I'm saying? I don't want to. Yeah, I do. Tension with tension. It's like, well, I mean, like, I don't have, I, I like, I showed you that thing where, you know, I created so much fascial and muscular tension in through my, you know, my lats, especially in my whole front chain that when I side bend, I literally have pressure pushing air in and out of my lungs, like a pump. Like it's not me breathing. I'll just bend from side to side and it literally pumps air in and out because of how tense and how tight that's become. I'm trying to reverse that right now, but it's painful. It's painstaking. I'm like trying to undo these fascial adhesions all through my rib cage and all through my lats and all that stuff specifically from creating that. And when I run, I always have a little bit of a pump out. So it's, you know, it affects my breathing. So being able to be in that back chain and breathe really, really deep, I literally feel that constriction starting from the center of my ribs, going all the way into my lats, hold, holding me back quite a bit. Like that's the, the, the ability to relax the front of your body. We have a culture that's like abs, right? And you see that the mirror selfies, it's always front chain dominant so that the abs will be flexed a little bit more. That's, that's what the cultural paradigm is. And it kind of screws us up, right? How, how long, like, I'm going to be honest with you. I probably lived 10 to 15 years of my life, semi contracting that area, you mm. know, uh, especially in the summer, you're walking around, you want, why not get a little bit of a pump there and, and walk around with your abs a little bit more contracted. However, that equals front chain, right? So mm. the actual, like the dirty secret here is that when you're elongated in the front, you don't really have that crushed out six pack that everyone loves right? Yeah. Like your, your front looks a little bit more elongated where maybe you don't have that look that is standard in, in Western culture. Right. Um, my, the front of my body doesn't exactly look like there's, you know, those crunched out six pack abs, even when I have no fat, it still looks like there's abs there, but it's, they're more elongated. Right. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's what I'm going for now. And, and achieving it is elongating the front. Yeah. Not well, it's just <laughs> pumping up the back to battle the crushed front. That, that, that does make sense. You know, like obviously with enough, uh, hypertrophy in the, in the rectus abdominis, like you can still have an elongated rectus abdominis. And like, I don't really know how it would go, but like, if, if you were really obsessed with having a six pack and, and you wanted to maintain abdominal length, I don't really know how I would do that necessarily. Maybe it would be some of the long range work and I, yeah, I would do some antagonistic work as well, but I'm not a hundred percent sure. Again, it's because we have the goals of optimizing locomotion at the expense of some of these other, you know, vanity metric goals. It's, it's, it's hard to prioritize that. I even think about like, okay, what's the, one of the most popular abdominal movements called? It's literally a crunch. You're crunching the, the front part. You're, you're literally crunching your abdomen in. And that's what you're training your body to do is to crunch your, your rectus abdominis down so that you create this, you know, like sort of image of separated abdomen. Can you think of a scenario where you're doing that in real life outside like, of a specialty sport? Like trying to, trying to get up off the floor, maybe like mm -hmm. the initial, like if you're laying on your back and you have that initial crunch up to like hoist yourself up yeah. with your arm. That's the one situation that I can think of like functionally that, that you would be doing a crunch is the best way to train getting up to pump up the abdominal muscles is to, <laughs> to the maximal level and hope that that's 
propels you up? Or is there a way to get up off the ground that's very smooth that you can do with the, the joints of your body using, you know, like a Turkish getup, let's say, even though that's probably yeah. not the optimal way to do it. Um, something like that would be su more superior to me versus just, you know, using the abs to crunch up to, to get up. Even though, mm. like, I'll just throw out the Turkish getup because I don't really love it. But it was just an analogy to say that there's a better way to do things, right? Mm. Um, mm -hmm. Now, again, if I want, like, bigger abs and, and more abs, then I'm going to do crunches. Like, that's just the way <laughs> it is, right? Yeah. So I'm not saying that nobody can do it. It's just that um, for optimizing locomotion and getting out of your front chain, it's it's wise to elongate the front and not have it completely crushed all the time. Mm -hmm. If you think about, I always think about sprinter bodies, right? And like sprinters have some of the sickest abs of any sport in my opinion. Um, and I think that's a result of, you know, a lot of that spinal waving that happens, that side to side contraction, they have incredibly well-developed obliques, even if they're back chain dominant and they're really extended, they still have that spinal side to side action and that sort of like, unilateral passing of back and forth of that energy really promotes abdominal development and you still have to stay, you know, you still have to, like you said, you have to have enough stability to maintain that head over foot behavior. And if you're, if you're stable enough to do that at high speed, your, your abdomen is really well developed, I reckon. So training locomotion directly won't necessarily get you a conventional bodybuilder style six pack that looks like, you know, a set of bricks just on the front of your body, but it will develop your abdomen in a very functional, healthy way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, with, with regards to sprinters, I think there is like, even within this industry and this niche of biomechanics and all that, a little bit too much of an obsession with looking at sprinters and extrapolating that they're doing everything correctly. Yeah. And I'm not saying that go to guys do that. They, I don't, I don't see them doing that exactly. And, and in fact, what I see is most sprinting assessments being side view and not being able to see what's actually going on with the, the motions. Okay. But, um, that aside, it's good to look at sprinters, the best sprinters in the world and see what they're doing to create torque to, you know, um, how they're doing the things that they're doing and the commonalities and all that. But I don't think that being, looking at Olympic sprinters is the way to extrapolate completely how to do things for the average person, right? No. Because they, you can still have a giant engine and have parts that are failing. Okay. So it's more like with a straight line sprinter, you could be more like a stock car. You can put a 900 horsepower engine on a Honda civic and still go straight and it'll work. But as soon as you take a turn, you're screwed. Right. So mm. it's like, um, I would definitely look at more at athletes that cut and have to move that way. And the best ones that do those movements versus uh, straight line sprinters. Yeah. And, and, you know, even, even sprinters, you can break down their, even elite level sprinters, you can look at their form and be like, this probably isn't optimal for, you know, every, everyday human movement. Um, you know, you might look at a sprinter that stayed injury free for most of, if not all of their career and kind of look at their biomechanics and, sort of compare them against other people who've stayed injury free or elders or, or indigenous cultures and see what movement commonalities there are. That's, that's the thing about observation is that you need a significant amount of observation to see consistencies among many different data sets. It's not just, you're, you're not just like looking at one thing 
like we used to do with bodybuilding magazines, you'd look at big guys. It's like, Oh, guy with big muscles. He does it this way. That's how I should do it. That's like, that's one data set. Right. But if you look at like when you're, when you're trying to figure out biomechanics, especially you want a big data set of multiple observations and finding the consistencies amongst those observations. Oh, absolutely. That's, that's really the way to do it. Right. Like consistencies amongst observations in the biomechanics field is the way to go. And it's very unique because it is visually based, right? Like compared to other sciences, you can see it happen right in front of you. So, um, putting that within the scientific field and within the scientific community would be a good idea as opposed to, uh, relying on the research for everything. Right. And well, the, the word, the research, right. It's, it's usually based on, you know, it's like, I feel like it would be harder to set it in the, the, the constraints of a scientific study, you could put together a large data set and you could say, you could have a meta analysis of, uh, you know, 50,000 <laughs> different injury videos done in slow motion. And it's like, Hey, we found that of, of these 50,000 videos of this exact same injury, we found that 90 something percent of them demonstrated this one behavior and that would be statistically significant. And then, you know, you could take another 5,000 or whatever, how many thousand videos of people who never injured themselves. And you could say, Hey, like of all of these videos of these people who never injured themselves, we found, you know, whatever percentage of this data consistent, like when Goda is criticized for not using scientific principles to validate their theories and their methods, it's just because we haven't, you know, like, the data is there. I think the visual data is there. The statistical data is there. It just hasn't been codified in the structure or the publication of a study. Um, absolutely. This reminds me of a, uh, little internet debate I had the other day. Um, I can't remember who it was, but he, he, it was on a go to video, right? And mm. the go to video showed slow motion of a, I can't remember who it was. I think it was Odell Beckham jr. Actually. Uh, tearing his, I can't remember if it was the ACL or Achilles, but basically, uh, during his injury, you can see him landing on the inside edge of his foot and he, uh, tore his ACL, right? Let's just say it's the ACL. Can't remember mm -hmm. which one it was, mm -hmm. but the person that, uh, commented on it, I think it was a physiotherapist. And they said, well, there's no proof that this happens. And here's the proof that it's not valid. So I looked at the article, they sent a PubMed article. I'm like, show me where, where there is a proof against what Goda's saying, okay? Because mm. Goda's showing me the visuals, okay? And I'm seeing them over and over again, and I'm seeing the injury mechanism happen. And in that inside ankle bone low position, pushing off the inside edge of the foot. So mm. where's the proof that this doesn't happen? Because I've seen it three, 400 times now, right? Like, because I've watched a lot of slow-mo, and I haven't mm. seen the opposite. So he sends me an article on PubMed, I look at the PubMed article and it's a meta-analysis, like you said, right? And the meta-analysis was like, there's no proof that valgus and, and uh, causes ACL tears. And I look at it and their variables of how they're <laughs> defining this are all over the place. And none of them apply what Goda is saying. Okay. So they're using variables that are from the linear cadaver model saying that there's no correlation and uh, Trust me, it takes a trained eye to be able to see the correlation. I don't see very many people with this good trained eye. It's all side view assessment. That's the truth in the uh, scientific world. So um, your 
whole argument or like the argument is that this data disproves the, you know, visuals that you can see. And therefore we can discard the visuals and the correlations that happen there. And the, you know, 300 of the same mechanism in, in the injury that you saw, because this paper that has, um, linear cadaver models all over it says that the mechanism that you say happens does not happen. It, it's mm. so ridiculous. It's like, let's, let's just get the visuals and put them in an arena of ideas and let's have debates. Right. Like, it, I don't know why we really, have to not look at them. It reminds me when I was vegan, to be honest, because uh, like my health was deteriorating really quick about two years into eating a completely plant-based diet and I was doing it right. Like I had spent over 10,000 hours studying nutrition and listening to different uh, lectures on nutrition and looking at peer reviewed medical research. Um, and I, you know, I remember like, uh, there's a guy named Dr. Michael Grieger has a book called how not to die. And it has over 5,000 scientific studies that validate that a whole foods plant-based diet is the most, you know, disease resistant, healthiest, best diet for the human being. Meanwhile, my guts were getting destroyed. My mental health was declining. I had no libido like, and I was eating like 4,000 calories a day, trying to get my daily micronutrient, uh, recommendations for while I was training for CrossFit. So I was, you know, like I was a mess all the time. And, but like in my head, it was like, but there's so much science to prove that what I'm doing is the right way. <laughs> and like, it was basically, I was, I was, I was prioritizing scientific proof and the perspectives from like literally thousands of scientific studies over my own direct experience. I was, I was the, like, I was basically, I was trusting science over my own experience. And so when you're looking at these data sets uh, and these meta analyses that are directly contradicting what you're seeing in front of you, like, it's like, no, what you're seeing isn't actually what you're seeing because the science says it isn't, then you kind of have a problem because it's directly interfering. And I'm not saying that perception is the end all be all, right? Because you can perceive the wrong thing. Like your, your subjective viewpoint can be wrong as well. Um, and I, like, I kind of gaslighted myself for a long time while I was vegan. Cause I'm like, Oh no, it's, it's not that the diet is bad. It's just that I'm doing it wrong. So I'd make a tweak and take more B12 and do more supplements. I take more probiotics to digest all the fiber that was destroying my stomach. Like I did so much to try and like convince myself that it was like, you know, that, that my direct experience was wrong somehow and the science was right. But in the end I had to go with my, my literal gut and, uh, and I started eating a more animal-based diet and my health and my digestion and my energy and my mental health and my libido, everything, you know, just skyrocketed after I did that. And, uh, you know, it took me a good couple of years of recovering from a vegan diet to finally realize like, shit, I was like in maximum cognitive dissonance mode because I was only looking at what the science said and not trusting what was happening in front of me. It's interesting. Um, so going, going through school, it's very, very research based, meaning that like, you're a good, uh, like in my field, chiropractic, you're a good chiropractor. I know this is in physio and sports med and all that. Um, it, you're a good practitioner when you're research based, because when you're research based, you're going with the best research. Literally that's, that's what it means. Right. And the best research to you is the top scientists in the world who are thinking about this constantly. I've given you the best information and that's a trust that you have, right? However, now when I look at the, uh, a study, I don't just go, oh, this is, you know, this prestigious journal. So it's right. 
or this is the latest research. I now go straight to the methods mm. and I want to see how they're doing it. I want to see what is your actual, how did you plan out this uh, study? Yeah. And most don't meet my expectations on how they're, how they're actually performing the study. That meta-analysis is, it was a perfect example for me because as soon as I read it, I went straight there and the, the way that they're classifying knee valgus, they don't even understand GOTA. They won't understand the rotary model. So you just proved that things don't happen a certain way using your own model, right? So there's a lot of that. It, it comes down to this. There's a new paradigm and that's looking at the movement, actually mm. visually seeing it, right? Yeah. And a lot of the educated people don't want to look at it because it goes against years of education. You're supposed to be the smart guy. You're supposed to be the one with the information. How can these guys in, let's say, Gota, like Coach Gill, how can this guy who's not educated at all in the field, like formally, how could he find the way to move correctly in nature, you know, like uh, actual fractals of movement? Yeah. How is he the one that found it versus all these Harvard professors or, you know, PhDs? And there's thousands and thousands of them working and compiling information. However, did you have your first principles correct? Are you working <laughs> off the correct information? Somewhere down the line, you didn't check your work. And that means meaning the people that came before you. Okay. So a lot of in the scientific world, it's working on top of data. You're working on principles and then you just build up on that. But if your first principle has a flaw in the foundation, then the flaws are going to be all above those levels as well. Right. So mm -hmm. that goes back to me looking at the methods of how research is done when I get sent a paper. How did these people come to their conclusion, not the conclusion itself? Now with the public, I think what the public does is most people just, you know, it's in the news, it's in the um, social media. It's like, oh, Harvard says that this happened. So this is how it is, right? They don't even yeah. go to the level of reading the research themselves. And a lot it's of people like, don't know how to read the research themselves. Like I remember when I was doing uh, nutrition, I would message my brother or I would message a friend, he's a physicist. They'd be like, hey, I think that this is what this, the, the study is saying, and I'm looking at the methods. How far off am I? And sometimes they'd be like, no, you got it. And then other times they're like, dude, you, you're misinterpreting this completely. Like you, you have no idea how they actually did this. This study is actually very poorly designed. I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> Most people don't know how to read scientific studies. And so you know, we're, we're in this position where scientific journalism, which any actual scientist sort of despises because it dumbs down the the nuances of some of the the conclusions and and the studies that are being presented in, in scientific journalism it, we, you have to rely on this dumbed down version of it that can be biased to give you a message that is you know just as biased for whatever message the media wants you to hear yeah like uh, in terms of what we're doing i just want to know that they're they've looked at other ways to do it or like they've, they've looked at all the variables that need to go into the study design. Now I know more than most people, because obviously we do this all the time. Right. So I'm like, Oh, they missed this, 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 and this variable. It's like, wait, who are these guys that are actually doing this study? Right. And then you'll find like a lot of them don't have their own movement practices. A lot of them don't ever move themselves. They'll go to a gym and they'll lift weights. And then that's the paradigm, right? Because that's the pinnacle right now. The pinnacle is lifting weight. Everything has to be looked at through that lens. It's like, okay, we have these exercises. 
They're for biomechanics. They're going to help you spin your femur uh, in a better behavior this way. But it's like, okay, so can I add weight to it? Or how do I do this with weights? It's like, why does the weight have to be there? It's just like an external resistance needs to be there. And it doesn't always have to be an external load of weight. Mm. It can be many, many different things. However, that goes back to more of the, you know, how culturally it's all about weight. It's all about force and resistance in my mind. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's like, that's the, that's the standard, uh, like me too. When I was, when I was originally studying strength and conditioning, it was like the scientific studies that I would look at were, you know, ways to optimize force production or ways to optimize muscle hypertrophy or, or motor unit activation. Um, that was, that was sort of the the lens that I was looking through. Cause I was a lifter and in my mind. It was like, Oh, you know, like I fixed a lot of my posture with lifting. I, I lost a bunch of, like, I lost a hundred pounds lifting weights. You know, I never like lifting weights and, and walking on a, on an inclined treadmill. I lost a hundred pounds doing that. Right. When I was young, I weighed a lot. Um, and lifting was one of these. So, so in my mind, it was like, lifting is the end all be all. This is how you become a better human. Like you literally, you just have to lift these weights. And it's funny because I, I like I just had <laughs> I just had a conversation with uh with a good buddy of mine who was uh you know he, he just lived in he, he lived in Banff and he he he's a really hardcore guy. And he was like, What's this go-to thing, man? Like I'm almost afraid to to learn about it. I'm almost afraid to to know because it seems like it would be a a, a red pill. He's like, you know like the barbell obviously isn't natural, but could, you know, training with a sandbag or like a hex bar, like surely that's a little bit better than just moving. And I'm like, dude, like it's, it's literally, it's just that we're, it's, it's not the implement, it's the linear linearity of the movement that's really fucking you over. And so, you know, you can, you can study the nuances of motor output and, and of hypertrophy and, and maximizing these things. And there's really good research on how to optimize that and how to prevent injury for that and how to do, you know, how to reverse the damage that you're doing with that. But it's still the mindset of linear movement. And it's, you know, it's the, the lifting lens is fundamentally linear movement. Even the little bit of transverse movement that you have with like the cable that you'll, you'll, you know, you'll move into transverse plane that still doesn't kind of, honor the sort of spiral dynamics that start from the ground and wave all the way up through your spine. And that was something I learned too, because when I started doing Gota, the feedback that I got on my runs was you're way too, you're emphasizing this transverse bending of your shoulders way too much. You're not actually bending your spine. You're literally just rotating from your thoracic while your legs are, you know, driving you forward. And I'm like, but I thought that was the spinal engine. I'm, you know, I'm like, I'm, I'm waving from side to side. It's like, yeah, but you weren't, you aren't actually spiraling that motion because it's. I've been trained to go frontal, sagittal, and transverse plane and not actually combine them into that spiral dynamic movement from my foot all the way through my spine out my head. Yeah, it's just the bottom line is locomotion movement is different than lifting. Okay, there's two <laughs> different things. You can apply some lifting and some external resistance to locomotion. But at the end of the day, locomotion usually happens with you and your body and, and the parts that go with it, right? So for me, learning how the parts move and making it automatic that they're moving the most optimal way possible is the goal. Mm -hmm. okay? So the amount of external loads that I use is very, very minimal at this point. However, I'm a thin guy, right? Like, so it's, 
if I wanted to get more hypertrophy, I would probably go to weights because that's the best way to do it, right? Like mm. in terms of actual, if your goal is to get hypertrophy, it's known how to do it, right? Yeah. The two things are, are different though. They're just different implements and different uh, goals. And uh, it's hard for the average person to fathom putting away the weights, especially athletes, right? We're, we're talking more of the athletic population here. It's hard to let go of the barbell in mm-hmm. terms of, no, no, no. It's just you and your body, but yeah. Well, it's funny. Cause even I started, uh, you know, in my own practice, I started playing with a little bit more landmine stuff and I tried to do some loaded drop-ins with a landmine. So I, you know, I loaded this thing up and I put it in a front rack position and I spiraled into that, that drop in and got into that back chain dominant position. And I was doing some reps and I, uh, you know, I posted a video up and, and one of the coaches messaged me. He's like, dude, that's, that's cool and everything. But when you come to the top, look what your hips are doing. And I was looking at my hips and I would do this drop in and be super back chain dominant. And then I'd come back to the center and I'd push my hips forward. Like I'm doing a deadlift. I'm like, fuck, <laughs> I'm still doing day, it. Like a week ago. That was, that was like, yeah, just a week yeah. ago. And I was like, God damn it. Like I'm still doing these, <laughs> these horrible patterns that as soon as I start to, you know, add this resistance, like I try to jump ahead all the time because for me, I've been like, when I was lifting, I progressed really quickly in lifting. It was really gratifying. It was something that was like tangible. So I'm like, okay, can I add some element of resistance training? My shoulders feeling a little bit better. I can start training, you know, after surgery now. So I wanted to start adding some resistance and I'm like that lifter mindset screwed me over because I'm, you know, movement quality and I'm training bad patterns again. I'm like, damn it. (laughs) I I know what you mean on that. Um, Yeah. So for me, I put away the weights probably like, three years ago, I still swing mace bells, still, uh, swing weighted ropes. Like I have a, a pretty heavy rope. And when I swing it in the infinity pattern in the, you know, getting into 22, five, I don't want to get too deep into it, but basically I mm. swing heavy ropes in circular patterns. Right. And I try to keep the principles together and that's how I'm doing resistance training now. And I find it more, uh, fruitful for movement versus just linear direct training. Think about this. Like is there a scenario? Maybe I'm incorrect. Maybe you can, uh, think of a scenario where I'm wrong here, but the heavier you go, the more linear you have to go. So your movement has to become more linear as you increase weight. Think about like, if you have your max weight on a barbell, you want that path, the bar path to be as linear as possible. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, same with deadlifting, same with anything. If like, if the heavier, the implement, the more straight you have to be eventually your body becomes like that where it's like straight movement. Yeah. You're going to be strong in one plane of movement. And when you're applying force into the ground a lot, that's another thing that we were talking about the other day. That's interesting is force application into the ground. When I'm boxing, I'm trying to be quick, quick force application. Meaning that like, I want my foot to touch down for like 0.0001 second. And I want to be able during that time to apply force in either a movement or out of my limbs. Okay. If I, if I choose to do so, Hmm. I don't want to stay in the same spot for a long time. If I don't have to, if I choose to, that's fine. However, I don't want to be rooted. If I don't have to, if the said principle is true, if you specifically adapt to your demands, isn't putting force through the ground for a long period of time, like what you're doing when you have weights, you have to put force through the ground a lot like the antithesis to moving fast to actually having fast turnover at your feet. 
it definitely does to me in my own practice. I feel that it does in boxing and in striking motions. Mm. And I suspect it does with running as well. Now that will be a hard pill to swallow for a lot of people because they're like, no, 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 that just makes you stronger. Right. And there's no force application time that variable that makes much of a difference here. You're just pushing through your feet harder. So it's better. Right. Mm. Um, yeah, I'm willing to debate that one. I'm not sold completely, but I feel it in my own body during striking. Yeah, because, you know, I think what's what's fascinating, too, is because you're talking about pushing force through your feet, which in a heel toe model, in a linear movement or a linear locomotion model where you're driving, you know, you're you're pushing into your foot and you're driving through the big toe, more force production does kind of make more sense because you're literally you're you're putting a super flat part of your foot. But when we're talking about a rotary model, we're talking about spinning the energy off of your foot. You're not like when I I've started running a lot more. My own practice was like, I want to learn how to run. Cause as you know, someone who is always lifted and has always prioritized shorter bursts of energy and energy systems have really trained my aerobic base. And just in general have never been able to run comfortably. Cause like I was always clunky at deadlifted and all I did was like like every time I stepped into the foot it was like an earthquake through my body so I'm like I want to learn how to run efficiently and enjoy running so the 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 practice that I have right now is you know I'll run at the the fastest speed that I can while keeping my my step as light as possible prioritizing that pivot of the energy and I can I can run pretty fucking quick uh without putting a lot of force through my foot. I'm, you know, I'm still landing and I'm, and I'm absorb, but like I'm absorbing force into my system and then pivoting it off. Right. So is it, is it that you need to be able to produce more force or would you want to train yourself to be able to have biomechanics and tissues that can absorb more force through that bowing motion? Like go to talks about bows and corners you still need strong tissues to absorb force into a bow. If you're running faster and you're absorbing more energy, that doesn't, that's not your uh, native for like, you're not producing that force production. You're absorbing that force and then pivoting it out and transferring it efficiently. So do you need musculature to, to have greater force production or do you need more resilient tissues and thicker tissues that can absorb force into that bow and transfer it fast? Yeah, that's, it's an interesting question, right? Get, like going back to the fascia and the um, connective tissue model, I want my connective tissue to behave elastic, right? To behave mm. like an elastic. If I have my joints in the right position as I land and I can pulse my muscles at the right time, that's optimal to me. Now I can hypertrophy my muscles to make them bigger. That will actually thicken the fat or not thicken, but tighten the fascia on the outside of the muscle. Okay. And then maybe I can use that as a way to propel harder. No, mm. sprinters are, are thick for a reason. There's not a lot of thin sprinters. Some come to mind like Andre de Grasse. Um, who else? There's a, there's a few that are thinner, right? But most are thick and big musculature. Now, I don't know if they're weight training. It's possible that a lot of them are weight training now, but even when you look back in the, in the fifties and sixties, a lot of them are pretty big and jacked, right? So there is something to straight line sprinting, sprinting short bursts, having musculature for that is a good idea. If that's your goal, if that's your only goal. Right. Mm. But my goal is efficiency. I'd rather give up like 
and th- this might sound weird to an athlete. I might give up 0.2, 0.3 seconds on my 40 time to be more efficient in my movement because I want to do other things as well. I don't just want to prioritize that. Right. So yeah. going back to the question, if given, you know, I don't have to work too hard for it. I'd rather have bigger muscles. Okay. Uh, stronger, elastic connective tissue. Okay. They don't have to be huge muscles, but big enough to pulse fast. Okay. Uh, connective tissue that absorbs and coils and elastic really well and joints that are painless and can land in perfect positions to go to my next maneuver. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and that that's, that's way more eloquently articulated than what I was trying to say. <laughs> that's, that's, that sums up what I was trying to say. It's like, I, I like, you don't need a ton of uh, motor unit recruitment and you don't need a ton of muscular hypertrophy in order to like i still think the the tendinal thickness and and the resilience of your tissues is important but it's uh you know the the set principle in my mind is getting more and more specific in, in terms of that training specificity thing if you're like i'm i'm starting to think that a lot of the force output stuff and the, like it is specific like specific adaptations to impose demands what demands are you imposing on your tissue adaptation when you're lifting weights Versus when you're recoiling the the force of your, you know, your foot landing and pivoting this energy, like what, what's the difference in the tissue stimulus? If force is the, is the language of the cells, as Dr. Andrew Espina has said, and we've, we've quoted a couple of times in previous episodes, if, if force is the language of the cells, what's the difference in the force of lifting? Like you said, driving your feet through the ground and having this maximum, uh, you know, motor output versus re- elastic recoil. There's th- those are two different types of force. Absolutely. And uh, that's, I mean, we can get in the weeds there, right? Because force being the language of the cells. Yeah, that's true. They respond to force, but is the small, like, does the sum of the parts equal the whole there? Right. Mm. Because at a, at a cellular level, yeah, they, they do respond like that on a systemic level. Um, I'm asking this more as a question. Does the sum of the force at the cells equal the system? Because let's put it this way. If I put force on the cell, that could equal more force could equal, um, you know, like a heavy squat. Mm -hmm. Okay. So at the cellular level, yeah, it's, it's, there's more force being applied to the cell. And let's say it's a squat in ATG range. Let's say it's an ATG split squat. Okay. Mm -hmm. To see we're pretending it's the largest range possible. Okay. Your cells are going to adapt to that. At a cellular level, I look at a microscope. I'm like, okay, these cells have adapted to be resilient, strong, but where's the rotary component there? Where's the, the spiral energy component to the adaptation? That one can't really be seen on a microscope. You have to go to the larger picture to really get the, the view there, right? So to me now, force doesn't always equal the language of the cell, right? or I shouldn't even say that. Force isn't only applied to the cell. The said principle, it should be applied at the higher level, at the spiral level. Well, I don't, that, I don't that, know how to exactly articulate that. That's kind of where I'm going with it, though. But that's, that's you know, I, I I think that that's kind of where I was go where I was coming from, right? Because if you're if you're doing a let's say a barbell back squat and or an ETG split squat or you're practicing high level sprints or you're doing go to drop ins and you're practicing that spiral mechanic those are all levels of force and let's say that you know the weights 
are somehow equivalent or the force production is somehow equivalent that when you're doing a barbell back squat, a, like if you had a force plate or something and you could measure the exact amount of force that's being output, you're, you know, you're applying force in the exact same amount in these different ways, you know, like if you're practicing rebounding out of a, out of a drop in position and you're practicing a rebounding spiral versus you're dropping into a back squat at high speed that you could be producing the same amount of force. Like I used to drop into squats. Like I would have 400 pounds on my back and bounce out of the hole. And you know, for me, I was practicing that elastic recoil and that turnaround. And that made me really springy in the frontal and sagittal planes, right? Like I could, I could jump straight up super, super high because of that. But like my run was not efficient. My, you know, my walk was not efficient. Nothing was actually efficient. And I had elasticity in my hips, but only in, in the context of a squat. Like I could bounce in and out of a squat, like no problem. I couldn't bounce in and out from side to side when I was running. So, you know, force, force is like, again, it's like, when you're thinking about the said principle, you need to get really specific. There was, there, I've seen some really funny memes uh, of, of people who kind of trash talk the functional fitness community. Um, like there was the, like, I think I sent you a, one meme. There was this guy who was playing basketball and he kind of was dribbling and then he took a three pointer. And then it shows a scene of him in the gym and he's on the cable machine and he's doing the same back and forth. And he does a, a free throw with the cable machine, it's like sports specific training with the, he's doing this like cable free throw. I laughed cause I'm like, okay, it's funny, but like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do weighted free throws <laughs> cause that's not, that's, that's not specific to, to shooting, uh, you know, free throws. But when you're, when you're thinking about cutting and you're thinking about running and you're thinking about being able to move well in these positions, it's like, just do that, do that more, train it more. <laughs> Absolutely. With what you said with the squat, I had the exact same experience. I could bounce out of the squat with heavy, heavy weight and no problem. I was, I was very elastic and, and, you know, because you're like that, I want to drop in the squat all day. And my yep. vertical jump was a lot, a lot better. Squatting does transfer to vertical jump much better because in the vertical jump, you, your hips are accelerating forward. Your spine is accelerating backwards for the most part. It definitely does, uh, accelerate and heighten your, your jump. Right. Um, with the squat though, that definitely that elastic energy at the bottom does not transfer to the elastic energy in your run. So yeah, mm. at a cellular level, I could put it on a microscope. Oh, the adductors have this elastic property now and the force from the squats has adapted your cells. So we're good. Except that in reality, the said principle works with very specific movement as well. Right? So it's an interesting topic to explore there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it really is. And I mean, like that, you know, for me, that was, that was like the big aha moment of realizing that just because I, you know, I'm developing this elasticity in one range doesn't mean that I have universally elastic tissues. Um, and that was, that was even, um, when I was doing the ATG program, I felt springier, right? I was like, oh, you know, like I have this range, I'm feeling a little springier in my step. And I'm, you know, I have this, this, these, maybe like I did some tendinal conditioning. And so I have like a little bit more tendinal resilience in, in these ranges. Um, but, you know, try to get me to run or do lateral shuffles or, or do anything like I, I couldn't do it because I was still 
you know, forward, like just um, linear movement the entire time. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure where the um, the thought that the said principle would apply from, you know, squatting and deadlifting and the and the traditional linear weights into three dimensional movement. Like I I don't know how you get the said principle and then come to the conclusion that those two like a squat will make you a better runner. How, how, how is that doing that? I've never got that answer. And I never really answered into my own head. We're talking years ago, right? Because that Mm. was the wisdom of the day. It was, you know, squats, deadlifts, heavy, heavy lifts will make you better at running. You just have to do them intelligently a little bit. Right. To me now, what makes you better at locomotion is looking at your locomotion and seeing what you're missing and adding it in or, you know, vice versa, really. Um, if you're doing something a little extra, you got to take it out. That's fine too. Right. So Mm. we can be much more specific with each body part and we can have models of movers that we want to move. Like for me, it's, you know, Michael Jordan, I, I think cuts beautifully, right? Uh, the movement, the energy is very, very, it looks simple. It looks simple when he's doing things, you know, that's what I love. Um, there's, there's many others that I can name, but I, I think Michael Jordan is my go to elder to look at. He's you know, <laughs> your, your, your young, ultimate. Right? That's awesome. Yeah, That's yeah, super cool. Sure. I, I don't really have, it's funny. Cause like for me, I haven't found my sort of end all be all movement role model, so to speak. I used to really admire the movement of, uh, Roy Gold and Ido Portal. So like all the guys from like the Ido Portal method in Israel, I always found that movement was so fluid. Um, and, you know, as an artist, you know, like I, I'm, a, I'm a painter and I'm a musician and like I've always been involved in, in visual arts and I've always found dance like this incredible art. So seeing this fluid movement and this like seemingly universally resilient ability throughout the body in these multiple ranges. It was like, wow, this is like, this is incredible. So I was obsessed with, I was obsessed with parkour athletes as well. Like I, I think I mentioned on one of our more recent episodes, I used to do parkour when I was uh, a little kid and I'd jump off these like 20 foot roofs landing in a roll. And that was the first exposure to transferring energy instead of absorbing energy was like, you know, you can, you can, it like, <laughs> you can't fall straight down off of a 20 foot building. But if you run and you jump off a roof and you're able to, you know, have this diagonal uh, trajectory down towards the ground, you can transfer the energy into a roll and dissipate the the force and not hurt yourself. And so I learned how, you know, like my friend and I would do this. We started on like two foot drops and then we got up to five foot drops and then 10 foot drops. Eventually we were like, you know, we spent we probably spent like half an hour on top of this roof, like, fuck, we're going to fucking die, but let's, let's do it anyway. And so we like find, you know, like half an hour of like psyching ourselves out. We finally run and we jumped off this roof and landed in a roll. We're like, Oh my God, we did it. And we never did it again. But, um, you know, I don't, I didn't have anyone who was a locomotive role model or a role model where someone could transfer energy from one direction to the other, to the next. I had parkour athletes and people who use movement as art and movement as art like dancers have horrible joints in a lot of instances, like ballet dancers or contemporary dancers, they always end up with some sort of joint tissue. Um, you know, maybe they're not training their tissues as effectively as they could be, or maybe they're just doing too much, um, you know, movement and, and creating dysfunctional laxity in different parts of their, their system, you know, kind of depends on what kind of dance you're involved in. But 
um, you know, Ida Vortel was always a huge inspiration of mine when I was trying to go from, you know, rigid power lifter lifting type to more fluid mover. He, uh, Ido Portel and, uh, Roy Gold, who you're mentioning, they were also mm. who kind of inspired me first to take a look at outside of the lifting paradigm. Like, what are these guys doing? And even right now, Roy Gold's control of his body is next level. It's probably one of the best in the world that I've seen anyway. Yeah. And just his static control and how he can move his joints. Um, I, I would love that, right? I'd love to be able to learn that because there's no downside. That, that feels great on your joints, having that much control. However, is it my priority? Would it be my priority to learn from scratch? Absolutely not. It's more locomotion-based. That is gravy. And uh, to me, what do you, like... I don't know if any of the audience know who he is. They probably do actually, but uh, basically he can control his body in ways. He does spinal waves. He does um, very large range of motion movements that are very, very difficult. So mm -hmm. with it being enviable at the same time, uh, I don't train exactly to have that as my priority. And these guys are, you know, their whole life is movement. You know, they'll, they'll train for like a minimum of three hours and that's a light training day, right? The, the movement culture paradigm is that like, you're always moving, you're always adapting to something, you're always exceeding your boundaries. And, uh, you know, like the first, uh, live stream that I ever did on nofilter.net was actually with, uh, the mindful mover, a guy named Phil Chubb, who, uh, right now the, the training paradigm that he teaches is once a week training for an hour. It's like just literally once a week strength training and then, then you recover. Um, but he used to be part of, he got kicked out of Ido Portal's movement culture because he, he was questioning this paradigm of like always training and always moving and always adapting to these new stimulus. Cause he, he kept injuring himself. He spent like, I think he's told me he spent like a few years trying to get a one arm handstand and he finally got it. And he's like, now what? He's like, I injured myself. I like, I ate tons of food so that I could get all this muscle. I was like, I dedicated my whole life and trained hours a day to get this one arm handstand. Now what, you know, am I a good mover yet? <laughs> well, maybe it was the, like, if you're training towards one arm handstand, that's not exactly, you know, what the body does for the most part. So you are going to get some injury. That's a very extreme thing to train, right? Like mm -hmm. the amount of people that can do that naturally, probably zero, right? You have to really <laughs> go hard at it. And you're pouring a lot, a lot of energy into that. That's one of the most underrated aspects of training is like, what are you actually pouring your energy into? You only have a finite amount of time and energy. Yeah, you can do a one-arm handstand, but is it smart to, you know, he probably pumped hundreds of thousands of calories into, you know, pumping himself up to be able millions. to pull one. Yeah, millions <laughs> of calories, whatever it is, right? And uh, he was able to achieve it. And now he's like, now what? Right? Yeah. <laughs> Am I better at locomotion or am I better at anything in real life? I can hit up this one hand, one arm handstand, but that's the limit, right? So um, I would love to see some of these Edo Portal guys. I would love to see them run and cut. I want to see yeah. what it looks like. Mm. Um, they don't do a lot of that, I noticed. They do a lot mm. of stationary, not stationary movements. They're moving, but they're not actually locomoting in the normal human sense, right? Yeah, they're, they're not, they're not, there's not a lot of walking and running in, in the, the traditional, like how you would just go for a longer walk or longer run. The, the, the locomotion, Edel Portal was the first person that I heard use the term locomotion drills. When I, you know, when I first got into it, like he was the first person that got me into the idea of locomotion. I still remember the YouTube video. He was doing these 
horse walks and the lizard crawls. And like, he was the first person to have uh, be like, Hey, watch the locomotion patterns of animals and be inspired and start emulating them. What he didn't do apparently is, Hey, watch the locomotive pattern of human beings and emulate it, <laughs> like optimize uh, the human locomotive pattern. That's hilarious. Eh? He's, um, he's probably done more lizard crawls and he has walked. <laughs> Because <laughs> um, I haven't seen him do a lot of walking or running. It's it's just very interesting, right? I don't want to hate on Edel Portel because he was a huge inspiration for me. But yeah, um, yeah, like I think I've moved past it in that I do see locomotion as the priority, and that that being on two feet, mm. not not on two hands, not on four feet. Even though you can use that as like I use crawling as a way to rehab and do things slowly and get mindful and work that spinal engine, very easy way to work the spinal engine, very gentle way to, to feel using the outside edge of your hands and your feet, um, getting used to that. That's all gravy, right? But most of the training should be done, in my opinion, two feet and uh, how you're going to be moving 99% of the time in real life. Yeah, agreed. And I mean, that's, that's, we're, we're, that's the angle that we're kind of coming at this podcast with is, you know, what is the most natural? What's the optimized? I think in the intro, I recorded that we're trying to find the, the grand unified theory of human movement. And the grand unified theory of human movement is really basically, it's not what can you force the human body to adapt to be able to do? Because that's, that's a pretty, like, we're extremely adaptable. We can yeah. impose different types of stress to, to, to adapt in all kinds of crazy ways. And our body will adapt to it. Cause that's just what it does. It's an adaptive mechanism, but the, the grand unified theory is, or how, how are we supposed to move? And, and then how can we optimize the, the actual design of how we're supposed to move the actual evolutionary design basis of the human bodies and, and its movement. Yeah, absolutely. In my mind, it is, it is on two feet. And I think, uh, you know, coach Gill and Goda have found at least a partial theory, if not, you know, pretty complete. I, this is up for debate, right? Like, I never want to say something is complete because then you stop exploring, right? And that's yeah, been exactly. a problem throughout, throughout time. When I found WEC method, you know, I thought that that was it. I'm like, oh, side bend, spinal engine, they don't get it, right? Um, and the spinal engine was really the key uh, philosophy that unlocked a lot of movement for me. Mm. Who would have thought, right? Unlock your spine and then you can use it in your movement. <laughs> it's, a, it's a wild concept, eh? But it took a while to get out of that. You must keep stable, brace. So WEC was really the first one that got me out of that. And, uh, and then it went, you know, I explored functional patterns like movements, using the fascia to recoil you and, and to use that elasticity to recoil you into movements. I still use this all the time. It's not just functional patterns. You use it in like boxing is all about that, right? Um, and, and not just boxing, it's footwork. I apply footwork from boxing into almost everything and vice versa. I look at footwork from dance and I'll apply it into boxing, but I'll keep the go-to movements. I'll keep the go-to principles, right? So um, yeah, a, a lot of it is... Uh, getting out of the straight plane, getting out of mm. that stable, I'm going to hold rigid mindset and actual physicality into being able to move with a flexible spine 
and being able to harness that elasticity to get you in another position with balance. Okay. Those are the elements that you want. And to do that, I would use, you know, back chain dominance being one of the biggest ones. If not like the more time goes on, the more I see that as the, the biggest, right. Mm, mm. Followed by being in your columns, making sure your head's over your foot and having uh, a good landing bow. Okay. From there, the, the leaving position is obviously a lot harder, meaning that like when you push through the earth from your foot to spiral that energy correctly, most people are not. So it's really hard to rewire that part. So that takes a little bit more time to rewire the pushing of energy out of your foot. But the easy stuff is behavioral, butt behind rib cage, uh, landing in a nice bow, landing on the outside of your foot, be back chain dominant. Yeah. And, you know, like the more that we explore these concepts, the more that I apply them, I agree. The back chain dominant thing is the biggest, lowest hanging fruit. Like I, I had a day the other day where I was pretty tired. I didn't get a great sleep and I sat in my chair for a while and I sat in a front chain dominant position for like, I don't know, three hours while I was working on my computer. And I was like, dude, that jacked me up so bad. <laughs> like that, that messed me up so bad for, for hours on end for the rest of the day. It was, it was absolutely bonkers. Um, I unfortunately have to wrap this episode up because I got to get back to work. But for everyone who listened live, thanks for joining. Uh, for those who asked questions on the Instagram that we didn't get around to today, uh, we will do that next episode. I will make sure that we have some Instagram uh, posts pulled up and we'll be able to watch different clips of different movements so that you can actually watch. If you want to see that live, we do these live on nofilter.net where you can view all of our upcoming shows. Uh, thanks guys for listening to episode 37, I believe, of the Art of Move podcast. It's been absolutely awesome having you guys joining this journey with us and we'll see you on the next episode. Thanks guys. Let movement be your medicine.